We'll talk with David Lee Peremba, editor of If I Am Found Dead, Michigan Voices from the Civil War and What the Wolverines Did when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, this is Jeff and Rochelle from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. What is the best rule of thumb when tipping on a cruise? While it is completely up to you, most experts suggest 10 to $12 per day per person. This is usually settled on the last night of your cruise and may be distributed among your stateroom attendant, your waiter, the maitre d' and their assistants. If you want to save yourself the hassle of budgeting for this additional expense, consider prepaying your gratuity when you book your cruise or sometime before you set sail. If you want to add the gratuity later, that is your option. There are a few cruise lines that suggest a tipping optional policy. It is felt that service personnel are paid considerably better than on other cruise lines and the need to tip is not required. These will usually be found on higher-end luxury-style cruise lines. Some cruise lines will impose a service charge of $10 per person per day. This can be adjusted up or down at the end of the cruise as you see fit. Keep in mind, though, that gratuity are a large part of the income for the service industry. If there is anybody on the ship that you feel has done an exceptional job to make your cruise vacation more enjoyable, let that person know how you feel, both by extending a worthy gratuity and thanking that person personally. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune in to Travel Hub Radio, live Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and TravelHubRadio.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Today talking with David Lee Paremba, editor of If I Am Found Dead, Michigan Voices from the Civil War. And in our first segment, we talked about uh, David's employment at the Burton Historical Collection uh, found in the main branch of the Detroit Public Library, where over a 100 collections of Civil War letters and diaries can be found. And this book he has published includes four of those. Uh, David, I will say it was with uh, some relief I heard you talk about the uh, the hierarchy of the Detroit Public Library and the Burton Historical Collection within it as not being a, a direct department of the city of Detroit uh, whose management has uh, been maybe questionable over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, that, that, that bodes well, and it, it brought to mind when I lived in uh, the outskirts of Boston, the Boston Public Library in the uh, 1980s, at least, uh, and early 90s, was in really deplorable shape uh, as far as the general reading areas, the conditions of the shelves, the books uh, uh, completely mis uh, shelved and falling all over the place, a substantial colony of homeless people living within the library uh, who should be taken care of better by society but uh, end up in a public library instead. It was really not not a good situation for a major American city, and I would hate to see the same thing happen to Detroit's library system. Uh, 
but it sounds like at least there's some financial independence that, that gives the library some security. There is some, yeah. It's considered a state resource, so there are um, various fallback positions, if you would. Um, but hopefully it will it will be able to maintain itself as a very deep and very positive research collection. Well, let's talk about some of the, the contents of that collection. Uh, your, your book gives us the experiences of these four particular soldiers. Uh, tell us about the, the, the people you, you chose and, and why you chose them. Well, I picked... Uh, these four, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I wanted to cover, um, try and cover the entire conflict. So I had to pick uh, soldiers that had been there from the start to the finish, and I managed to do that with these four. Um, two are diarists and two are letter writers, although I didn't plan it that way. That's, that's how it worked. I tried to get um, men from across the state, and I did that. Two are from Detroit. One is from uh, originally from New York, but uh, was living in Muskegon at the time he enlisted. And then uh, my last entrant there, John Presley, is a native of Stockbridge, which is right about in the middle of the state. Um, See, so if we were in person, as Michigan natives do, we would hold up our right hands and point. <laughs> This is true. Bridges, this is uh, true. So you would have two guys below your thumb, and then one guy all the way below your pinky finger, and then one guy in the middle of your palm. That's right. I, it, it amazed me when I got older and realized people in other states don't do that when they want to show where they're from. No, it's not too many of us, too, can do the upper peninsula with along with the lower peninsula. That's, so a, that's it's the other hand at an angle. It's a little tricky. That's right. That's true. And then you can't point to anything at that point. So. <laughs> <laughs> when both hands are, are employed thus. So you've got, uh, from early in the war, you've got uh, the Vanderpool Diary. Um, yes, George, George enlisted uh, relatively early on, the 3rd Michigan Infantry, yeah. and his um, his service took him to the Eastern Theater, uh, the first Battle of Bull Run through, um, let me think here, he was discharged in February of 1863 uh, for medical reasons. But he has um, uh, some very interesting things to say about the first uh, Battle of Bull Run, and uh, that's why I chose him. Uh, Charles Salter, another one, was at first Bull Run with the 1st Michigan Infantry, uh, the Three Months Regiment, and then he later served throughout the war with the 16th Michigan Infantry uh, up until his uh, resignation in January of 65. And then James Werner, um, Salt, excuse me, Salter and Vanderpool both served in Virginia. James Werner served in the Western Theater. Um, his letters are um, are very chatty. He has a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, I'd say soldier's sense of humor, but uh, uh, one that's there regardless. Um, and then John Presley. Um, is a later entrant. He serves from February of 1864 until his death in August. So, uh, and a very strange death it was, too. His, um, after surviving the Battle of the Wilderness, um, Spotsylvania and Petersburg, he was actually struck by lightning and killed in August of 1864 near Deep Bottom, Virginia. Another ironic twist there. I would say that that makes him about the unluckiest guy in the war to go through the entire overland campaign 
which his diary gives us in, in little one-line sketches, uh, fighting today, next day, fighting today, next day, fighting today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a miracle anyone survives this, this ordeal of combat. Uh, and then he gets hit by lightning. No. Yes. And I had read uh, of a few instances of that happening. Uh, there was some Ohio soldiers I noticed in, in another edited uh, work that uh, several of them were struck, struck by lightning, some killed, others wounded terribly. So it, and, I, I, and I looked to try and find a, a statistic on that, but I didn't. But that would, uh, I guess for the statistic-oriented, would, would bear some looking into to see how many accidental deaths of that nature occurred because these these men are all out in the elements. There's no uh, very little cover, if you would, if you're uh, in, in tents and things like that. But interesting, they all pretty much had uh, all four of these. Well, the three that survived war had some very interesting post-war careers, if you would. They, they uh, did uh, Vanderpool in particular. I thought was uh... Vander. That's that's really interesting, uh, George goes back to, of course, he's discharged. He's had uh, typhoid fever and diphtheria. And by 1869, he's in the banking business with a partner uh, who disappears, and George has actually uh, tried for his murder. Uh, they, they found, uh, I think his last name was Field. They found him in Lake Michigan. And uh, George was tried not once but three times, actually, for, for the murder. He was... Uh, um, Convicted once, and then uh, he won a retrial and a change of venue, and uh, was a hung jury the second time, and then the third time, another in another place in Michigan, uh, he was actually acquitted of the crime, and he later on then goes uh, to Ohio and back to New York, where he was uh, originally, but he lived I think until 1924. So, um, very interesting uh, post-war career. Of course, Werner, for those of us from uh, the old Northwest Territories, comes back and uh, creates uh, Werner's ginger ale um, and becomes king of that empire for a long time and then became uh, prominent in local politics there in Detroit. Um, Charles Salter, perhaps our most uh, involved combatant, Resigns his commission due to um, a medical uh, problem he has. It seems he herniated himself in 1862 and then uh, really kind of got tired of the pain, I would imagine, by 1865 and resigns his commission. And he goes back to Detroit to resume his grocery career and um, does that for a while but then can't because of that condition. And he passes away not long after that, but his... Uh, his passing was not noticed, noted in the newspaper, so it's, it's rather a, an ironic end for Mr. Salter as well. So uh, Werner certainly then becomes the most famous, as you point out. Werner's is uh, a drink local to the Midwest, Michigan in particular, that has a peculiar tang to it. it it's much sharper than uh, ordinary ginger ale. And... Uh, it, it's not easily available uh, here in North Carolina. I can't get it uh, very easily. I, did, I have to admit I didn't care for it all that much growing up, but now that it's unavailable to me, it has this uh, allure, this mystique. Of the... We were always given burners when we were sick. 
That's true, uh, yes. Uh, help, plant help through the culture. Absolutely. It was and, given as a medicine. Uh, yeah, and for the longest time you couldn't get it outside the state of Michigan or at least uh, not too much farther out of Ohio, but uh, I can go up here to my local Publix grocery store and buy burners uh, on the shelf. To, so it's distributed, I think, by Pepsi-Cola. Well, that, uh, which was invented in, in New Bern, just down the road here from Greenville. So, oh, there you go. Uh, there are, there are the, the history of, of soft drinks uh, tied in with the Civil War. Well, you know, it was invented by uh, John C. Pemberton, a Confederate uh, artillerist. Right, well, what, what was invented by him? Pemberton, Coca-Cola. He, Pemberton was the inventor of Coke. I didn't know that. I knew. Yeah, he was a chemist, a druggist, if you would, and... Uh, Sort of concocted that uh, right after the Civil War. I, 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 was that in Atlanta, I believe? I believe so, yes. I, I know Atlanta claims origin of Coca-Cola. I, mm-hmm. uh, well, I learn something new every day. And now I'm envisioning a, a, a battle of the Civil War soft drinks, Coke versus Coke. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting, uh, yep. Well, leave, it to, leave it to veterans and ex-soldiers to, uh, with time on their hands after, the, after serving the colors. That's right. Well, Werner is, is uh, James Werner, the the uh, druggist who goes on to invent this, this soft drink. It's certainly an interesting character from his letters. As you say, he has a sense of humor. He's very uh, uh, chatty and, and uh, amusing in, in what he writes. I think I quoted him just one snippet uh, in, in the book I wrote, which only covered the Army up through the end of 1862. But he describes taking the train down from Michigan to Kentucky and there are troops on top of the, the cars as well as in them. They're all packed in, and they go under a low bridge, and some uh, not-too-bright guy apparently gets hit by the low bridge and gets a terrible head injury. His head is cut open, and Werner, as an assistant surgeon, is stitching him up and says the other boys watching uh, were, were ready to faint from the sight of all the blood, which is a kind of ironic thought because they're all headed down to Stones River. There's mm-hmm. a lot more blood than one guy getting some stitches in his head. Uh, but but Werner uh, describes that incident and many others in, in the letters that you have printed here. Uh, did yes, he, I, re- did, I recall that incident. I think he kind of tongue-in-cheek complained about the guy uh, complaining not so much that he was getting stitched up, but that he forgot to duck. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> It was his own fault, a self-injury. Mm-hmm. Um, not all the soldiers are, are as interesting to read as, as Werner's letters. Uh, I, mean, I mean, some of them certainly are, are, are mundane. Uh, what uh, Were Werner's among the better letters, uh, just as far as, as entertainment value went, in your judgment? Um, yes, I thought... Uh... Uh, being a being a veteran myself, uh, I could I, I sense that humor in uniform uh, attitude prevalent throughout his life, uh, and sort of had to include them. Not only did he cover the Western theater for me, but it was so so tongue in cheek so very often, and um, it just had to be in there to humanize uh, the whole thing. Um, even writing to his mother, he's. Uh, Rather jokingly, uh, he heard that he doesn't get enough to eat, and, and this is what he had to eat. And he's always chiding her about uh, not writing him often enough, which I think is a universal <laughs> complaint among those who who wear the uniform. Uh, that's uh, certainly true. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 
Bernard had an interesting experience. He, he joins the Army of the Cumberland. He's at Stones River. Uh, he's well in the rear of the Army, which ought to be a safe place. But uh, those who know the battle will recall Wheeler's cavalry launches a raid uh, as, as the Union right flank is being bent back. Uh, cavalry is going further back behind the Union lines, trying to cut their line to Nashville. And there's a stampede of the, the Union Teamsters and their wagons. And at, at some point, Werner and others get caught up in that, and they're captured. Yes. He was uh, he was captured then. Uh, he actually, uh, I think the, the, the rebel took a shot at him, and that uh, kind of evoked... Um, some comment from him that's like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not moving fast enough, just hold on one second here, I, I surrender. Um, and then it upsets him because he's then paroled, can't serve uh, until uh, he's exchanged. Um, and he's always uh, he's always writing home about that, yet he's still uh, not attached to his, uh, his regiment. He's back in uh, one of the base hospitals uh, in Nashville, I believe. Um, so he's, uh, he's always, uh, whining and complaining about that until he finally gets exchanged and gets permission to, to rejoin the, the regiment, um, further south. The, the parole system has always fascinated me. It, it's something we have nothing totally different from any way we would fight a war in the 21st century. But he is, having been captured, he's not taken south. He simply gives his word, his parole, that he won't fight till he's exchanged. So he's back, as you say, in Nashville at a hospital, but he feels he can't really do any work for the Union, for the Army, because that would violate his parole not to do anything till he's exchanged. So, That's, I mean, you get the best of both worlds. You've fought, you've been captured, now you, you're back with your own people, but you don't have to do any work. True. He can't, uh, according to his parole, he can't take up arms. He does, uh, he does work in the hospital a little bit True. here and there. But he can't, he can't be on active, uh, active duty, as it were, campaigning duty. Of course, so that, that ends, uh, I believe in late 1864 when they finally realize it's like, hey, we're, we keep, keep giving the South back their soldiers, well, th- this will never end. Uh, so, so the exchange program ends completely and they don't, uh, they don't bother exchanging anymore. And then subsequently you have, you know, the tragedies at Andersonville and in the south and Elmira and in the north and the prison camps. That's right. So there's, it, it's, it's quaint, but in a way it, it saved a lot of misery by allowing these exchanges. This now he, he could have gone on and fought and violated his parole, but uh, the penalty for that, then if he'd been captured again, would be death. That's true. So he really of had. course, it begs the question, would they recognize him and, and who was actually carrying the list of uh, paroled prisoners? But there, there's a sense of uh, honor there in giving your word. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, w- that's different from today, as, as all of history is different from uh, contemporary society, and perhaps one reason why we're so interested in it. We're going to take another short break and come back and talk more about these Michigan soldiers, their letters and diaries, with David Lee Paremba, former librarian at the Burton Historical Collection in Detroit, Michigan. We'll talk with him more in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio.